Okay, the scripture reading this morning comes again from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear this, what the Spirit says to the churches. So the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Awesome. Thanks, Evan. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this moment to be able to come before you uh, and worship you. God, I thank you for uh, the power your word has uh, to show us who you are, what you're like, and who you call us to be. God, before um, we could even hear these words, God, your spirit has to quicken our hearts and our minds to listen and to be attentive. And so, God, I pray for that now. I pray that your spirit would be with us in such a way, God, that we would, we would be receptive. We would uh, have open hearts and open eyes and open ears. God, may we be the ones that, that it's your word that we just read. Maybe uh, who have an, an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, may we be one of the churches that listens, to, that heeds your word, and that follows you. God, we know that's nothing we can accomplish on our own, but it's a supernatural gift from you. And so we pray for that uh, even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, this morning I want to ask you if you've ever considered... Uh, how the price of something is set. So you go to the store, you go to buy something. What determines the, the number on that price tag? I had always assumed uh, that, you know, whatever it costs to make something, they'd add a little bit to that and then sell it to us. So basically the, what determines the cost of something is how expensive it is to make. That seems logical. Well, I, I went to college and wasn't going to do economics, but I thought economics sounded kind of fun, so I took a couple classes and basically, and this is, this, if, you're, if you're actually an economist, you are going to totally punch holes in what I'm going to say. But here's the simplified version of what I think they were trying to tell me uh, in economics. They were telling me in economics that the cost of something is not the primary thing of, of determines, like the cost to make it is not the primary thing that determines how much is on the price tag. The primary thing that determines what goes on the price tag is how much we're willing to pay for it, right? So if somebody is willing to buy a car for a million dollars, then they'll sell it for a million dollars. If somebody's only willing to pay $10,000 for it, then they'll sell it for $10,000. They're gonna sell it for whatever we are willing to pay for it. So yes, when there's a car, an automobile, it's got all those different parts, the engines, all the parts that goes on the inside, all the different things that make it work, and all that takes cost and labor and design and all that, but the cost to make it is not the primary thing that determines what goes on the price tag. What goes on the price tag is how much we are willing to pay for it. So my next question is, what if we're all being tricked? What if we're all being tricked by the numbers on those price tags? What if what we're paying for stuff is not really what it's worth, at least not in the end, not ultimately? What if the true value of stuff has nothing to do with what's on that price tag? Soren Kierkegaard was a, a Danish philosopher a couple centuries ago, and he tells a, a parable that I, I found fascinating. 
This parable is about a, a couple of jewelry thieves, but they weren't thieves in the traditional sense. These guys, uh, they broke into a jewelry store one night and didn't take a single thing. What they did is they came in the jewelry store and they swapped all the price tags. So now the really fancy, expensive jewelry was only listed for a few dollars. And the jewelry that was really meant to be like costume jewelry, jewelry that your kids would wear when they're, when they're dressing up, now it was listed for thousands of dollars after these thieves had come in and done their mischievous work. Now just imagine if nobody noticed for a little while what they had done. Then men were, were saving up to buy an engagement ring for their fiance, and men were saving up for big holidays or anniversaries, and they were buying expensive costume fake jewelry to give to their fiancés and wives that they were going to wear around for a long time, proud of what their, their fiancé or husband had just bought for them. All the while, kids are dressing up for Halloween and, and, and wearing uh, around uh, throughout the house and just playing out in the backyard wearing fine jewelry, jewels and diamonds that were the real thing. Imagine how long that would last if it could go on for a little while where a little ways down the road, you know, this woman who's been wearing this fake diamond ring or whatever else, the, the gold begins to, the gold varnish begins to, to wear off and the cheap plastic begins to break. While, meanwhile, the, the kids who had expensive stuff and they didn't know it, they treat it rough and they beat it up and leave it laying out in the dirt and it gets washed out in the creek and they leave, somebody drops it just in a, in a uh, drawer with their dirty socks or something, it stays there forever. You know, we would just, if we didn't know, if all the price tags had been switched, just imagine what that would be. I want to put before you today that we live in a world where the price tags have been swapped. We live in a world where the price tags have been swapped. The world around us is telling us that, hey, you got to get ahead, you got to make enough so you can spend enough to buy the next nicest gadget, the next nicest phone, the nicest car, the nicest house. You, you got to make enough, you got to climb enough ladders, you got to be able to afford the really big price tags. This is what you got to do. You got to be able to buy the stuff that has lots of numbers on the price tags. But I'm here to tell you, the price tags have been swapped. Don't buy into it. Our world says that the greatest worth, the greatest value, goes into the things that are the shiniest, the fastest, the strongest. It goes into the things and to the people that, that get the most likes on social media, the things that draw the biggest crowds, the things that sell the, the most tickets. Whenever we get to go back, you know, hopefully we're going back to things that sell tickets. But in the end, here's what I'm convinced is going to happen. In the end, when we get through it all and we get before the Lord and we look at all the fancy things we've bought and everything, and we're going to look down and realize all the while we've been holding costume jewelry. The gold, is start, the gold varnish is starting to wipe off. It's breaking. It's tearing. It's not going to last for eternity because we're buying stuff that's just temporary. It's just the stuff of this world. Some churches, some people are blessed enough to get the tip about what the jewelry thieves have done in our world. Some people are, are wise enough, they've been made wise enough by the Lord to realize that the price tags have been switched and they live their lives accordingly. There was one church who figured that out, that figured out about the switch, that lived 2,000 years ago in a city named Smyrna. Now that city still exists, it's the city of Izmir in Turkey, 
and it's right on the, on the sea, on the Aegean Sea, facing across the ocean toward Greece. And this is a, still today, apparently, a, a beautiful city. And even back in that day, Smyrna was uh, referred to as a crown because as you were coming to it uh, in, in the water, coming up to the city, as the city kind of stretched into the hills, it looked like a beautiful crown sitting there right there on the coast. It was very, a very well-off town. Lots of trade came through this city. And so from, from what we know from archaeology and different places, this, it seems like most of the people there would have had a, a good-paying job. There was enough wealth coming in and out of that city that the trade of that city would have made this a very prosperous town. But there was one group of people in that town who missed out on the material wealth, and it was the Christians who lived in Smyrna. You see, that, the, that town was a part of the, the Roman Empire at the time, and, and to be in the Roman Empire meant you were forced to, to follow the Roman imperial cult. You had to come and make sacrifices to these Roman gods and burn incense to these Roman gods. There was one group who was given an exception to that, and that was the Jewish people. The Jews were, were given an exception because there were so many of them throughout the Roman Empire that they were given an exception. They, they didn't have to follow the Roman cult. But by the, the 90s AD, about 60 years after Christ's death and resurrection, and into the second century, the Jews had, who had, were not following Jesus, the Jews, had separated themselves from the Christians. They didn't want to be associated with the Christians, and so the Christians were left without the exception that the Jews enjoyed. So the Christians in this town were the people who were now ostracized. They were the people who were cast out. They were people who were persecuted. So while the rest of the town was enjoying the wealth of this crowned city of Smyrna, the Christians were living in poverty and tribulation and suffering and persecution. But it's okay. You know why? Because the Christians knew that the price tags had been swapped. The Christians had something that lasted for eternity, not just something that lasted for a lifetime. The Christians had, and Christians today have, a relationship with the risen Savior. That is the thing that is of the greatest value, the greatest worth. There is some, nothing that is more valuable than knowing Christ. Amen. And that's what the Christians understood. Last week we began this series in Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus speaks. He, he speaks through uh, John, an apostle, and they, he writes down these seven letters, short letters, almost postcard-sized letters, to seven different churches throughout Asia Minor, the part of Turkey, uh, part of what was today uh, Turkey. And at each of these seven letters, at the end, he says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So they're all intended to, to read each other's mail, so to speak. And to write to seven, to this perfect number seven, what he's trying to say is, Here's seven different churches, and there's seven specific contexts, but it's also a letter to all churches at all times. Because as you'll notice as we go through these letters, the things that they were facing were not unique to that time. Churches all around the world, through all different times, faced these kinds of situations and circumstances like these seven churches did. So as Jesus addressed the church in Smyrna and the Christians uh, throughout all history that faced this, he was addressing a group of people who were living in a prosperous time and yet were suffering, struggling, and poor. And so what Jesus was trying to tell them was pay attention to the, to the real price. Pay attention to where it really counts. Revelation 2.9, he says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, 
And then in our, our Bibles, most of them put in parentheses this right here. This is the most important part. He says, but you are rich. But you are rich. I know your tribulation. I know you're struggling. I know you're persecuted. I know things are really challenging for, right, for you right now. But let me tell you how I see you, Jesus says. You are rich. What a statement. What a statement to a struggling, persecuted uh, church. That Jesus tells them, don't worry. You have something far more valuable than everybody else around you has. You are the ones who are truly rich, not them. That's a, a, a strong word, I think, for the American Western church today. What, what makes us truly rich? What makes us truly uh, have value in this world? Is it the stuff? Is it the buildings? Is it the, the things of this world? Or is it something greater? It's really easy for us to look at all the struggles we face and say, hey, just like the people in Smyrna, I, I see other people have stuff. Other people have things that are, that are good and nice. Why, why can't I have it? You know, We can think, hey, I, I, I see other people have better things, and we just say, I, I'm poor. I'm poor, God. Why, why can I not have those things? But if we know what really matters, then we'll see where we can truly be rich. Jesus goes on to describe this church in verse 9, saying, The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there are these people who are around them, who were kind of claiming to be Jewish, but, but not really following the way things were meant to be. And so apparently they didn't know God at all, and they were making things really hard on the Christians. And so Jesus calls them for who they are. They're not following God. They're following Satan. They don't worship at the, the synagogue or the temple, the place of worship of God. They're, they're following the prince of this hair. They're following Satan. And they're making things really hard on the Christians. They're not seeking after the Lord. They're seeking after the world. And so because of them, because of those, the, the people that are persecuting them, the Christians are facing tests and tribulations and poverty. And so if you and I step back in and we saw those, we could step back in time and we could see those people, we would say, man, they look really poor. And Jesus is telling us, nope, they're not poor at all. They are rich. Just because uh, they were rich, as Jesus described them, no, doesn't mean it was easy. He's saying they're rich even in the middle of their struggling. Now, that's a helpful reminder for us as we, we come to God and we say, all right, I, I want to seek what really matters. But he also wants to give us a warning about, hey, seek what matters. Seek, seek what makes you actually rich, but beware of a couple, a couple temptations you're going to face. He says both these things in verse 10. He says, do not fear and be faithful. Do not fear and be faithful. So here we are, one, one local church like the church in Smyrna, and um, and like them, I imagine there are many people who feel poor for one reason or another. Maybe, maybe materially you feel underprivileged, under, like we don't, you don't have enough. Or maybe you feel poor because of the trials that you're going through, the suffering you've been through. Maybe you feel like uh, the life situations around you. You, you, you can pay the bills, but, but, but to, to get by week to week in life, it just you feel beat down. And so you feel poor in that way. Whatever way you may be able to relate back to this church, the same temptations they face, I think, are the same ones we face. It's easy when we feel poor, when we feel depleted, to, want to do one of two things. Either live in fear or just to give up, to, to say, I'm done. I don't want anything more to do with this. And so Jesus calls us today, as we're seeking true riches, to not be fearful and to live in faith. So all seven churches, he writes these two chapters, he gives us the same 
challenge. He calls us to be the ones who conquer, to be the ones who conquer. So we want to look at what that looks like today. Jesus, uh, for each of these churches, uh, he, he, you'll notice this pattern. I encourage you to read through these two chapters. wouldn't take you very long. You'll notice this pattern really quickly. That he addresses the, the city uh, where the church is, and then he describes himself. So he says, to the ones in Smyrna, and then he describes himself, the words that he's going to sp- say. But he doesn't say, this is from Jesus. He describes himself in a, in a specific way that is relevant to that church and what they're going through. So in verse 8, he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So to a church that's facing trials and persecution, persecution, Jesus wanted to remind them who we are putting our trust in, the one that we trust, the one that we value. So for many of you, I don't know what kind of trials you're facing, but I can tell you where you find hope. I can tell you where you find peace. It's in the one who died and came back to life. So that's what I want to, if you're following along in your notes, uh, on the bulletin, I want you to fill this in. Our faith is in Jesus, who died and came to life. Many of you were here Easter Sundays. We celebrated that. And you know that Easter is the, the biggest uh, holiday in the Christian calendar, right? And it's for a reason. It's because the resurrection, Easter Sunday, is the most important thing. It, it's the thing that impacts everything else in this world. The reason it's the biggest holiday is because this is what everything else centered around. And so that's what he's writing to this group of persecuted Christians. He says, remember, I am the one who died and came back to life. Why would that matter to them? Why would it matter to them as they're facing these trials that that this is who Jesus is? Well, for one, just imagine the empathy Jesus can have for us when we go through trials. We don't worship a God who is far off and distant from us who knows nothing about the world that we're living in. No, Jesus came to this world and He lived a full life as a man in this world and He faced trials and persecution and challenges beyond what any of us have experienced because He went all the way to the cross. As the church in Smyrna is trying to to survive as Christians in a world that's trying to beat them down for their faith, Jesus is saying, I know, (laughs) I've been there. That's what he says. He says, I know. In each of, these, each of these letters, he says, I know. And so for this one, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know the slander of those who speak against you. Our, our faith is in Jesus Christ who came and he went through suffering, not just a little bit, but to the point of his own death. Whatever your suffering you've been through before or going through now, it is a great encouragement to know that God knows he knows the suffering you're facing. He knows the trials you're in. He, he has felt it personally because he lived it as he walked on this earth. There, there's a great word, I think, here, especially maybe especially to husbands, but to all of us, that, that when, when somebody's struggling, they don't always need us to fix it immediately. Right, guys? Sometimes you know what our wives want, to, want you to, to be able to say is, I, I see your pain. <laughs> I see what you're going through. Jesus, the the King of kings and Lord of lords, looks at us in our pain and looks in our suffering and says, I know. I know what you're going through. He sees how we're struggling and where we're suffering. Jesus who walked this path with us. And it's almost as if Jesus is coming alongside these these Christians in Smyrna who are are struggling just to put one foot in front of the other. And he walks up to them and he, he picks up their chin and he grabs them by the hands and he says, I know. I know what you're struggling with. I see the pain you're in. 
Our faith is in Jesus who came and He suffered and He died. He has empathy with us. But of course, the death, His death wasn't the end of His story, right? The third day He came back to life. So not only is there empathy in Christ because of what He did, there's also hope because He also came back to life. Our faith is in the one who died and came back to life. He is living proof that persecution, suffering, trials, they aren't the end of the story. When you're going through, when you're living out Good Friday, when you're living out dying on the cross, it looks like how could there be any hope here? And yet Jesus is literally living proof that there is hope even in the worst of days. So the church in Smyrna, he, doesn't, we, he, he describes how they're going to be tempted and thrown into prison for 10 days. And we don't know if there was a literal period he was talking about there or talking about how there's just a, a starting end to some really severe persecution. But for all of us, we know there is an end to our trials. There is an end coming. It may not be 10 days from now, it may not be 10 decades, it may not be 10 millennia from now, but there is a day coming when Christ is coming back and will make all things right. And so in our trials and our sufferings, it's good to know that Jesus died and didn't just die. He came back to life. One of the greatest sources of comfort and hardships is being able to comfort in the middle of our hardships is being able to go through it with somebody who's been there before. You know what I mean? Some of you have battled and, and, and fought off cancer and have been a great source of encouragement to other people as they get that awful diagnosis. Many of you have, have walked through the grief of losing a loved one, a parent, a child even, a sibling, somebody you know that was just so close to you, and God carried you through that. And then God has used you to be a comfort to others as they walk through it. That's so much encouragement and strength. It doesn't make it all right and easy and perfect, but it's encouraging to have somebody that can walk with you through it. And Jesus is that. He has been where you've been, and He can bring hope and encouragement to you. Our faith is in Jesus who died and came back to life. And if we remember that, if we remember the one we trust in, then it has enormous implications. It has a huge impact on how we live today. By faith in Jesus, we can be faithful now. We can be faithful in life and in death. That's the second point there for you on your outline if you're following along. By faith in Jesus, we can be faithful in life and in death. Knowing what Jesus did in, in, in the past and knowing what He promises for our future, we can walk through life and we can even walk through death with Him. He reminded, Jesus reminded the church in Smyrna who He is and then He warned them about the, the trials that were still ahead of them. He tells them, that, yeah, you're already facing struggles, but they're gonna, there's going to be a time here. It's going to get worse. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and, then, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So no matter how long that, that time ended up being, Jesus was telling them, I, I know you're suffering and more is coming, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, even in the middle of your hardest trials. Why, why would he say that? I, I think this is what's going on here. Fear in our, in our trials is half of the suffering. The, the, when we face something that's hard, Half of the problem is how afraid we are in the middle of the hardship. If you take two people who have the exact same circumstances and one of them is overwhelmed by fear in the middle of that circumstance and one of them is living in peace through the middle of it, the one in fear has so much more suffering to deal with. Fear is, is half the battle for all the things we struggle with. When we're overwhelmed with anxiety and stress and concern, 
That, that just eats away at us. And Jesus is reminding us of who He is. He's, he's been in our shoes, and He has overcome it. Yes, there are trials you're going to face, but in the end we can have peace knowing it's, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. It may not be okay this side of eternity, but when Christ comes back, everything will be made right. So when we face trials, we can know a, a few really important things. Number one, God is good. And he is, number two, He is with us. And number three, He's in control. If you truly believe that deep in your soul, that God is good, He is with you, and He's in control, then you can face anything with peace. It won't be perfect, and we'll, you'll face hardships, but you can handle it knowing He's with you. He's giving this warning to these Christians, knowing that the Christians there in Smyrna and all around the world ever since were going to face some pretty serious persecution. It wasn't just there, of course, that Christians have been persecuted for their faith, but in every century, every culture around the world. And it's easy today to kind of live in our, our bubble and forget about the, the true persecution that's going, around, going on around the world. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, or some of the, the places where perse- Christians are persecuted uh, the worst in the world. Occasionally we get news out of places like Nigeria where, where half the country is Christian, but in the other half, uh, the Christians, it's one of the most dangerous places in the world to live. Made headlines a few years ago when, when uh, throughout Iraq, when Christians were called out and put at gunpoint, asked, do you believe in, in Christ? And if so, they were killed. Today, it's easy to, to forget about those people, but as we come to God's Word and we remember the persecution that Christians have faced, we're reminded to, to pray for God's people who are facing major persecution. It's a reminder to us to get our, keep our eyes lifted above just our own circumstances and see what the rest of the world has to go through for calling on the name of Christ. And I've always been hesitant to, to, to even claim persecution in anything, knowing what other people have to face. But Jesus himself does speak to even those of us who, who don't have to face that kind of persecution and gives us a warning. Back in Matthew 5:11, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Most of us, I pray, won't have to face the end of a, a gun for the sake of our faith. But many of us will be teased. Many of us will be mocked. There may be times in your workplace, in your school, where it costs you something to be known as a Christian. It may be easier to get by if people didn't know your faith or if you were willing to, to fudge your morals a little bit. It may be dangerous. It may cost you something to be able to live that out. And God says, blessed are you in that moment. Don't, don't hear the, the, the price tag the world says. The price tag the world says, says is it's, it's going to be, it'd be cheaper if you're not a Christian. You'll, get be, you'll be better off if you just ignore that part of your life. But God says that, that's a false price tag. You'll be much richer. You'll be much better off if you claim the faith you truly have. And so he calls us to even rejoice. Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. There's where your true value comes from. Rejoice even in the persecution. Why, why would we do that? Well, how could we possibly go through hard things and celebrate it? Well, let's get back to Revelation 2.10. He told them that their time in prison would be a time of testing. A time of testing. I hate tests. Why would that be a good thing? Well, the way a test works is that it helps prove what, what's really there. Right? Many times the way the Bible talks about a test is like gold that's being refined by fire. You know how that works, of course. We've talked about this, I'm sure, plenty of times here. That the way a fire works for gold is it pulls out all the impurities. 
And so in our faith, when we go through a time of persecution or trials or suffering of any kind, it's a way for God to pull up the impurities, to, to challenge us in our sin, to say, this is a false thing you're holding on to, and it's not the truth. With our tests, with our trials, persecutions, we'll be found faithful and more faithful if we're willing to go through it. And so while the rest of the world would, would, would label any kind of suffering as bad, we could say, even in this, God intends it for good. God intends it for good. I, I read a fascinating story this week about a guy uh, who was a, a doctor in India, Dr. Paul Brand. And he worked for a long time in India and uh, wrote about his time there after he'd been back in the United States. He wrote a, a, an article for Christianity Today uh, a while back called, And God Created Pain. A title, the headline caught my attention. So I read his article and he talked about his time working with uh, people who had leprosy in India. Craig's read this article apparently or knows about it. Uh, he, worked at, he talked about this time working there about how awful this disease is uh, working with people le with leprosy. So this is what he says. He says the tragedy uh, stems, so these people with leprosy, the tragedy stems from the absence of physical pain. The horrible disfigurement associated with the disease we now know has to do with the numbing sensation of pain. People with leprosy lack an internal system to warn them of danger, and they often wear their fingers and hands and feet down to stumps. How brutal is that? That because they lose sensation in their fingers and their hands and their toes, and, uh, they, they, they begin to wear away at their own bodies because they can't feel pain. Dr. Brand spent some time in the United States and observed the great irony of our, of our wealthier culture. He said, we've removed a lot of the physical pains, and yet we wear ourselves down to stumps in other ways. Because we can't feel other pain, we are hurting our own selves. He said, I regard pain as one of the most remarkable design features of the human body. And he said, if I could choose one gift for my leprosy patients, it would be the gift of pain. I also wish for the people in our culture that we would uh, cease seeing pain as something to avoid at all cost. If we would, our lives would not only be richer, but our bodies would be healthier. Do you hear that? Our physical bodies need to be able to experience pain to survive. Otherwise, we'd put our hand on the stove when it was hot and it would just burn away and we would never know it, right? We need to be able to experience pain in order to have a healthy life. And that isn't just true for our physical bodies. So many times the way that God works in His providence, and we don't always understand it, but He uses the pain we feel to make us more like Christ. He uses the tests, the trials, the sufferings that we cannot get our minds around. We don't understand it. We're not called to. But He uses it to bring about a better and a holier life. That is the way God so often mysteriously works. Spiritually, we need pain. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We think of pain as something to be avoided at all cost, but I'm telling you, the price tag has been switched. It's something that's not a negative. It can so often be a positive, a value to our life. That's why he says in verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful all the way to the end. He says, never give up. Never give up your faith 
in Christ. That is where true value comes. When the world in Smyrna was telling them, hey, give up Christ and you can have the pleasures of this world, he's, Jesus is saying, don't make the trade. It's not worth it. You may get a little bit easier life for a decade, two decades, a hundred years, but for eternity it will not be worth it. Don't give up your faith. No, remain faithful all the way to the end and God will give you a much greater reward. Many Christians around the world have had to make that sacrifice. They've had to go all the way up to death and be willing to be faithful even to the point of death. And that's a question worth asking ourselves. Would you do it? Would you give up your life? Would you be faithful all the way to the end to be a Christian, even to the last moment? If being a Christian cost you your life, would you do it? Would you make that trade, your life for your faith? Would you keep your faith even if it cost you your life? And if you'll answer yes to that, then the next question may be harder. If you're willing to give up your life, if you're willing to die for Him, would you be willing to live for Him? It's one thing, I think it's almost easier. I mean, impossibly hard. I'd never want to diminish that. And so many martyrs died for their faith. But it's almost easier to be faithful in a split-second decision than it is to wake up every single day and live for Christ. He calls us to not fear the trials of this world and to be faithful all the way to the end, whenever the end may come. If it comes today or if it comes a hundred years from now, he says, be faithful. That is what's valuable. Having a, a, a faith that is committed to Christ through all the ups and downs of life, that is worth more than any millionaire billionaire could ever offer you. To be faithful to Christ all the way to the end. If we know that Christ lived and died for us and then resurrected to give us hope, then by faith in Jesus we can be faithful in our life and in our death. The worst that can happen to you isn't that you would lose your life. No, no, no. The worst that can happen to you is that you would lose your faith. Amen. And by Christ, we know that He's got us. We can trust Him. We're in the palm of His hand. We can trust that He's got us. So we live our life with Him by faith in Him. We know we'll never lose it. That's the greatest value. The richest people in life we think of are, are the billionaires, the people who are running all the multinational corporations and people that do all kinds of big things. We think those are the, the richest people. Those are the people who have it all together. But the Bible tells us that the price tag's on the wrong place. These are the people who are the richest in life. The richest people in life are those who conquer death. The richest people in life are those who conquer death. Verse 10 again says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. If we came to the church in Smyrna, they would have looked so poor to us. And yet Jesus is telling us, in this well-off city where everybody is flourishing and everybody else is doing great except for the Christians, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Those people who are making all the money, they, they're not the wealthy ones. The ones who have faith, those are the ones who have the greatest wealth. Jesus says, I know that in this world you're going to face tribulations and trials and struggles. As it says in John 3, uh, 16, 33, in this world you will have trials, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is telling them their, their faith, their perseverance, their willingness to go through trials and tests, that's what makes them wealthy. That's what makes them wealthy. So today I want to ask you, how, how rich are you? How, how rich are you? Where, how, how, where, do, where are you putting the price tag of the greatest value? Where are you sticking that in your life? Is it in your 401k? Is it in the job you've got? Is it in the, the financial potential you have? 
Is it in the, 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 the amount of money that you're building up in your house and the way that's uh, growing your, your net worth? I, I just can't give my, that phrase even just drives me berserk that somehow I can pull up on a computer screen all my accounts and they tell me my net worth. And I'm like, no, partly because I'm discouraged, you know, about it. But, but in Christ, in Christ, my net worth is far greater. Where, where is your wealth? Where is your treasure? Are you rich or are you poor? I'll tell you, nothing opens your eyes to that quite like seeing Christians in a different context. If you've ever had the chance to travel outside of our, our world, or I mean our world, <laughs> to Mars apparently? What am I saying? <laughs> our country uh, into our, our little sphere here. And it, it happens here in, in, in our country too, but but man, traveling to, to serve alongside the, the group of Mexican pastors I worked with back uh, six weeks or so ago, and it's two years now I've gotten to serve alongside them. Man, these guys, they come walking up, and I've got this you know, camping backpack. i got all the supplies. Like I look like I walked out of an REI catalog because I'm so like focused on trying to survive this hike. And these guys are showing up with a little drawstring bag and sandals, and he's been hiking for five hours already to come meet with us to start the hike, you know? And it was just incredible to see these guys. And, I, I, you know, you, if you stopped in on that moment and you saw me all dressed and ready to go for a hiking trip and this guy in sandals, and you say, all right, which one's rich, which one's poor, we'd have an opinion. But then you hike for two hours and hear this guy share the gospel in two different languages, Spanish and an indigenous language. And I'm like, man, this guy is so wealthy. He is so rich because of his faith and his perseverance. And I just see that time and time again. Jesus told us this would happen. Luke, uh, James 2.5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Heirs of the kingdom, people who are rich in faith. This crown city of Smyrna, everybody would have thought, hey, this is where you go to, to make a, a good living. But Jesus is saying there's a better crown that I'm going to give you. There's a better crown. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, he says, do you not, this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, he says, do you not know that in, in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they so, do so to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And if you watch the, the Olympic Games back when they had it in, in Greece, back, in, back to where the original uh, Olympic Games started. Do you remember seeing the, the little wreaths that they all got, little, little uh, green wreaths that they all would have? And these are things that, that the, the, the athletes would get for winning. They get this nice little crown for winning. But Paul says, you know what happens to that green crown? It, it perishes. But what we get in Christ is a far greater worth. Man, be an Olympic athlete, the, the fame, the glory of that, or be a Christian. The price tags the world says are completely backwards. In verse 11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If Christ doesn't come back until, uh, if Christ comes back before we die, then we will be with him. But if Christ doesn't come back until after our life on this earth uh, is done, we will all face the first death. But as Christians, we have overcome the second death. We will not be sentenced to a life apart from Him. No, we will be resurrected. We will be with Christ Himself. And there is no greater value than that. To persevere, to conquer, that's the greatest treasure. And because of that, we get to be with Christ. There's a man who is probably in the congregation, in the church in Smyrna, 
this day when John writes this letter and sends it to them that Jesus is sending through John, a man by the name of Polycarp. And we know his name because he becomes one of the most famous early martyrs of the Christian faith, the Christian church. And we get his story that about, I think it was 160 A.D., so about 100 years after Christ, he is brought before the, the pro-council out before the, the guard there, and, and they're told he's warned about what's going to happen to him if he keeps his Christian faith. And so the, the, the man was to, Polycarp was told by the, by the man there, he said, swear by the fortune of Caesar and repent of your ways. So turn away from, from being a Christian and instead put your faith in Caesar. And he says, if you, if you swear by him, I will set you at liberty. And Polycarp declared, 80 and 6 years I have served him, talking about God, and he never did me any injury. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior? And the proconsul said, I have wild beasts at hand, and these I will cast, you, cast them on you unless you repent. And Polycarp said, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is in good order and to adopt what is evil. Again, the proconsul said, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing that you despise the, the beast if you will not repent. And Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little while is ex extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring it forth. Facing beast, facing fire, he said, I'd rather die here for my faith than to suffer an eternity apart from Christ. When he said that, they surrounded him and piled up all the wood and brought him up on top of the, there to be burned. And they were about to nail him to the wood so that he would stay there. And this is what he said. He said, let me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without you securing me to the nails to remain without moving in the pile. They didn't have to nail him there. Just set him on top of the wood and lit him on fire. The Christians that watched his martyrdom said that he appeared not to be, to be burning, like his flesh was burning, but he appeared as bread that is baked or as gold and silver that is glowing in a furnace. His life, he had to give his own life to be faithful to Christ. That's a man who the world would have said, you are so poor. You died for nothing. You, you, you got nothing. You had to die for this. And God says, no, no, no. There's nobody wealthier than somebody who gets to be with Christ forever. Today, are you poor or are you rich? And if you think you're rich, where are your riches based? There's only one place you can have eternal riches. There's only one person who can give you the crown of life. His name is Jesus. Put your faith in Him.